and this is my world. G'day, mate. 40 here. Let's uh, check in with Tucker Carlson, see what's going on with him. And welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. In July of 1993, a radio station in Kilgali, Rwanda, began openly attacking one of the country's main ethnic groups, the Tutsis. The radio station was called RTLM, but many remember it as simply Hutu Radio because its audience was primarily Hutu. According to Hutu Radio, Tutsi people were responsible for virtually every bad thing that ever happened in Rwanda. Tutsis had way too much money. They had way too much power. Tutsis were way too privileged. They were greedy. They were bigoted. They were racists. They were dangerous. Everything about Tutsiness was repulsive. For the most part, actual Tutsis in Rwanda ignored all of this. Hutu radio was not aimed at them. But then, in July of 1994, just nine months after RTLM went on the air, a genocide began in Rwanda. More than half a million Tutsis were murdered, in many cases by Hutus, whose rage had been stoked to violence by RTLM's broadcasts. Entire Tutsi families were dragged from their homes and hacked to death with machetes. Hundreds of thousands of women were raped. The world watched in horror as it happened, but did nothing to intervene. Instead, our leaders told us at the time, the genocide in Rwanda would live forever as a lesson to the rest of us about the capacity for evil that lurks inside every human heart and the dangers of reducing our neighbors to the sum total of their ethnicity, their individuals, not ethnic groups. Bill Clinton gave an eloquent speech actually on the subject in Kilgali back in 1998. Look it up and ask yourself as you read it, if any Democratic Party official could today say those same words. It's hard to imagine given what plays on a loop on that party's cable news arm, MSNBC. Have you watched MSNBC lately? Likely you haven't. Like the Tootsies, you're not the target audience, but you should tune in sometime. It's remarkable. Given that opposing racism is America's national religion, it may surprise you to learn that open race hate forms much of the substance of that channel's programming. And when we say race hate, we're not referring to the subtle coded variety. You want border security? You're giving your kids piano lessons? You like Shakespeare? You believe in the SAT? You must be a racist. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of race hate you cannot mistake for anything else. The kind where people just come out and announce, I hate this race of people, and here's why I do. It's hard to believe that anything like that is happening right now on American television. But it is, out in the open. And the most amazing and the most creepy part of all is that no one is saying anything about it. It's all but ignored. And honestly, we had no idea it was going on either until we started getting texts from people. Are you watching this? Can you believe this? So we tuned in. Apparently on the left, what you're about to see is considered completely normal, even good. And that should worry you deeply. You don't want to live in Rwanda. But on MSNBC, they're already there. Now, you probably knew about Joy Reid, the race lady who's been fixated on race hate for years now. But MSNBC has a new host, someone called Tiffany Cross, who hosts a show called The Cross Connection. Here's a selection. Many of us have seen the dangers when powerful white people decide they want something, they annex it. And they've never had a problem replacing the people who stand in their way. We see American white people are, are going crazy. They're, going, they're resorting to violence. 
This is literally what conservative white folks do when they don't get their way. They turn violent. White people Welcome. deputizing themselves in some position of authority to have jurisdiction over their life when they need to mind their blanking business. I don't think it's our responsibility to be tasked with destroying and dismantling the uh, racial oppression that's against us. That's just saying we're more at fault than the white people who constructed this system and the white people who continue to practice institutional racism. A majority of white people do Hello. not support policies that would unpack and unroll and reform this system of justice. This is what they want. Matt Gates is giving the white folks what they want. White replacement can strangle culture. So, yes, we should all be concerned about white replacement. It is, after all, a very threat to our survival here. Is there anything worse than white people? They're violent. They're heartless. They're cruel. They're deranged. They're secretive. They're dishonest. In fact, as you just heard Tiffany Cross say, white people are a mortal danger to you and your loved ones. They threaten your life. Are they poisoning the wells? Are they baking bread with the blood of your children? If not, according to Tiffany Cross and MSNBC, they're fully capable of doing those things. They've certainly done worse. This is Hutu Radio. But it's not an independent radio station in an African country. It's part of one of the biggest news organizations in the world. Part of the biggest telecommunications company in the United States, Comcast, which owns it. So you have to ask yourself, what does Comcast board think of this? Comcast board is mostly white people, white people who, according to the channel they own, decided they wanted something, then they annexed it. White people who steal because they're white, white people who could, quote, turn to violence where they don't get their way. White people are going crazy, endangering their communities. So you have to ask yourself, why are they putting this on the air? Why are they allowing this? This is not a policy debate. These are open attacks on people, on Americans on the basis purely of their race. And that's just a selection. We could go on and on and on. Are they aware that this is happening? Perhaps they're not. We weren't, to be fair. But it is happening day after day after day after day. And at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, if it continues and nobody stops it, do they agree with it? Maybe they do. And just in case you think that we are taking Tiffany Cross out of context and pulling the worst quotes from a out-of-context segment to make her seem crazy and racist. <laughs> Here's more. Here's Tiffany Cross at MSNBC. Look, a lot of folks in that Capitol insurrection, some of these folks were white women. And I know we're talking a lot about Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, but I do think that some of the white women who adopted it, have adopted this ideology, is America ready to face the fact that some of those folks look like people they have elevated and put on a pedestal of being untouchable. What do you say about this wing of, of white women who have been radicalized and are enablers to this very dangerous domestic terrorism movement that we've seen increase quite rapidly? So it's not just whites, it's white women. Their women are bad too. Women, of course, are the key to reproducing the white race, which is clearly a threat, as she says again and again, to you and your family. They're dangerous. They want to hurt you. Now, don't be fooled by the fact that Tiffany Cross can barely speak a coherent sentence. She was a communications major, apparently, according to the Internet. That didn't work. But the gist of it is very, very clear. White women are dangerous because white people are dangerous. They are by the nature of their DNA, potential domestic terrorists. 
Now, you can play the game, well, if any other group were spoken about this way, this would be shut down immediately. And of course, that's completely true. There's no other group in America you could talk about the way that Tiffany Cross and Joy Reid and other anchors on MSNBC talk about white people. But you don't even have to play that game. It doesn't matter what the color is. It's always wrong to reduce people to the color of their skin, to their melanin content, to their DNA. And it's even worse to attack them on the basis of that. And in fact, it's the basis of violence, actual violence, actual violence. But Tiffany Cross can't be criticized because she's oppressed. That's the key. Watch this. What we didn't see were enough voices willing to point out the deeper, festering rot that's plagued this nation since it was born. People who neither discovered nor built this land have been led to believe that America is theirs and theirs alone. Will this democracy survive? Well, a Yahoo News poll says no. But perhaps when you build a nation on stolen land with stolen labor, it was never going to be a republic we could keep. And so here we are, celebrating the birth of a nation, independence for white men. Okay, once again, calling out a specific race by name. Now you have to wonder about the other anchors on MSNBC, MSNBC, some of whom are that race. Do they notice this? Do they know what's happening on their channel? Are they okay with this? What do you think happens if we continue to talk this way? You may not watch that channel, but some people do. What does this look like in a year or five years or 10 years? What kind of country do you live in? Well, a country at war with itself, race war. This woman, Tiffany Cross, whose clips you've been watching, is so deranged by a racialist worldview that she believes all people of one color are oppressed by all people of another color. And to prove it, she says, even NFL players some of the richest people in our society, some of the most celebrated, the most famous, the most privileged, even they can't escape the all-pervasive hatred of diabolical whites. Watch this. I gotta say, Mike, the optics just look bad. To see all these black men crashing into each other with a bunch of white owners, white coaches, and the complete disregard of black bodies and black life. I mean, it just represents a larger issue. So, I mean, you know, look, the average salary for an NFL player is more than $2 million a year. 60% of NFL players are African-Americans. In some positions like cornerback, virtually all the first string players are black. So, okay, we don't have a problem with that. Most people don't have a problem with that. But if you look at that picture and say, this is white supremacy, what are you really saying? You're saying that anybody involved in the sport who is white defiles the sport because whiteness is itself inherently corrupting. White people are so evil that their mere presence in a sport that is overwhelmingly African-American and from which African-American individuals are benefiting is enough to destroy the whole operation because there are whites involved. What kind of talk is that? Well, it's genocidal talk, actually. Not an overstatement. That's exactly what it is. So again, you have to wonder, what does Comcast board think of this? It's not a rhetorical question, really, now that we're talking about sports, because Comcast also owns an NHL team, a hockey team, the Philadelphia Flyers. And maybe not surprisingly, the NHL just published its first ever diversity report. And according to that report, we have a huge problem with hockey. And the problem is there are too many white people in hockey. Now, why is that a problem? No one actually explains. It doesn't need to be explained because it's just prima facie obvious. We've got a lot of white people. That's inherently bad because white people are inherently bad. Again, do you want to live in a country where powerful people talk this way? What do you think it looks like in five years? The head of 
The NHL's, quote, social impact division said, quote, we have a lot of work to do. Hmm. Again, how does Comcast board feel about this? Will the board undergo some kind of forced diversification? What about the NBA and the NFL? Admittedly, we're not following all of this, but as Joy Reid and Tiffany Cross tell us, that's probably because we're white and too stupid to understand. I think for Kamala Harris, she's had like the triple problem of being a woman, and so people not being willing to respect her the way that they would respect a male vice president, of being black, which we already know that, that what that carries with it is the anti-blackness comes, you know, with the package, and then also being vice president at a time that is really, really difficult. Joy and I talk about this all the time. Madam Vice President, and you know this, Charlene, she black black, okay? Yes. She went to Howard, she AK, and when she talks to you, yeah. it is, I mean, she sounds she's so like regular. Me. She's so regular she and really approachable, is. and I just, it's unfortunate that more people don't see don't that. And there's also just the dumbing down of the American electorate. We could go on and on. We could read excerpts from Tiffany Cross's book, which are brimming with racial hostility. We could play you a million clips from Joy Reid, which are exactly the same, filled with open racial hostility. But you get the point. And if you don't believe us, just go ahead and tune into MSNBC. But it's not really about that channel or those hosts. It's about a society that thinks that's okay. Where it's not really about diversity, it's about hating other people on the basis of their race. And it's a little bewildering to the rest of us who thought the whole point of, of America was that we're aspiring to a country where we are judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. And all of a sudden, racial reductionists don't simply have the floor and the platform on cable news shows, but have apparently the unquestioning support of the biggest telecommunications company in the United States. What does that say about the country and its leadership? Jason Whitlock is the host of Fearless. He joins us to respond tonight. Jason Whitlock, thanks so much for coming on. This seems, and I'll just be honest, as, as noted, I didn't really know this was happening. I'm not all that interested in hearing people talk about race, and I'm definitely not interested in watching that channel. But once you do watch it, you think, how can this be happening and nobody says anything? Tucker, it, it's pervasive across corporate media. Uh, it's pervasive in the sports world. It's one of the reasons why... I left ESPN and Fox Sports to be quite frank with you and wanted to do my own independent thing because of the way that we talk about race in the corporate media is very unhealthy. It's very toxic. It's it's intended. People have been bought and paid for to undermine this country. Tiffany Cross, Joy Reid, any of the other people doing this type stuff. They know exactly what they're doing. They're doing exactly what they're told to do. They're planting the seeds to make people believe that um, the American experiment is a failure and the Constitution needs to be rewritten. That's right. And they're That's using right. race as their disguise. That's the entire agenda here. They're not hiding it. America is a failure in their mind because the outcomes uh, don't meet their demographic criteria or quotas. And, and so all of this is to bait all of us into a race war and distract us from an attack on America, its constitution, and primarily it's an attack on God. I'm, people get upset that, oh, like Christian nationalism. I don't. This country was founded on biblical principles, period, end of story. This is a biblical experiment, the United States of America, and it has been a success. The atheists, the Marxists, the people hostile to God 
want to end this biblical experiment and they're using race to tear it down. That's the nuclear weapon. Race, 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 race. We haven't treated race right. We got to write a new constitution. This whole thing's been a failure. It's a smokescreen. It's an attack on God. Those of us that are believers, regardless of our surface level differences of skin tone, if you're a believer, you got to wake up and look at what they're doing. They're attacking God. You think they're attacking you. They're not. They're attacking God and they're attacking a country that was founded on biblical principles. Is this country perfect? No way. But it's better than anything else. It's the only biblical experiment that's ever been tried with a nation. The results are better than anybody else has ever gotten. What the the steps we've taken in this country to correct our racial problems or steps other countries haven't come close to. This is satanic what they're doing, and they've been paid to do it. Okay, I just find that that a a bit much. I mean, he's just aping Jordan Peterson there, who who claims that this and that, it's all an attack on on God. You can look at the United States and see it as, as the most secular nation in the world. Sure, a lot of people go to church every week but uh, christianity in america as my father said to me 40 years ago is about a mile wide and an inch deep so the way that the economic system is run here the way that people move around for work uh, the way that people live their lives is overwhelmingly secular in the united states and religion is a way to try to recapture in, in a very superficial sense, the, the virtues of what it used to be to live in an old-fashioned community where people uh, knew each other, grown up together, had, had lived there for, for generations. And so in, in this constantly changing United States of America, this hyper-competitive, hyper-rationalized, hyper-economic man country, people want you know, a taste of old-fashioned community and they turn for religion for that. But this idea that America is some, you know, Bible-based principles country just imbued with with the spirit of the Lord and uh, biblical ethics is is nonsense. And the idea that what's going on on MSNBC is some sort of revolt against God, right? I there's just no basis for that. You can, Jordan Peterson comes up with that. Like he'll say, "What's going?" He was asked, "What's going on with Antifa?" And he says, "Well, I think at core it's just a a revolt against God." Okay, I wanted to talk about uh, Kanye West. I was particularly amused by Richard Spencer's critique. Amused and interested because Richard is incredibly eloquent speaker. He's, he's compelling. He's fun to listen to. I do think the whole situation was rather funny. Um, and it, it's even made even funnier by the fact that Kanye, as this you know, extremely successful music artist, is connected to all of these big wigs. And he's allowed back on social media platforms by or encouraged to come back by Elon Musk. And then the moment he comes back, he effectively says the N-word, or maybe even worse in a way, um, going after the holiest of holy taboos, uh, was rather hilarious, I have to say. But I also think that, you know, looking at a situation like this and saying, oh, this is great for us, or, you know, nationalism is rising, or, you know, he's our leader. I, I think all of that is uh, extremely silly and wrong. Um, so anyway, those are just my thoughts on Kanye. I do find the whole thing rather fascinating. And I do think there are also just these little, in Kanye's incoherence, 
there are these little threads that you can follow that I actually think reveal a lot about his personality. Okay, so what's going on politically in a country is not primarily judged by the profundity of its political conversation. People do not have to have this well-developed political philosophy to make a difference in politics. Politics is this externalized expression of evolutionarily adaptive impulses. So we've evolved over thousands and thousands of years through evolution and those those for, forms of life that are most adapted to their environment and are then therefore best able to pass on their genes to the next generation, right? They survive over the generations. So both the right-wing impulse, so the right-wing impulse means hierarchy, ultra concern about order, fear of contagion, and left-wing impulses, egalitarianism, uh, willingness to try new things, right? New ways to organize life, uh, diminished fear of the, the stranger, right? These basic impulses are adaptive depending on the situation. So in certain situations, the, the right-wing conservative impulse is more adaptive to the situation. So for example, if your community is threatened by outsiders, right? You are going to have a better chance of passing on your genes if you take action to protect your community against outsiders. On the other hand, your community may well prosper and do far better if it becomes more open to outsiders, if it embraces outsiders, says, come on in, right? Sometimes outsiders have the you know, magic, right? Sometimes outsiders have tremendous skills. Sometimes outsiders, you know, bring a lot to the table and they should be embraced. And so in those circumstances, the left-wing, more open, embracing approach to strangers is more adaptive. In other situations, a right-wing, skeptical, concerned approach to strangers is more adaptive. So we have these basic evolutionarily developed impulses to react to life. And you can intellectualize these impulses and you can develop, you know, a political philosophy based on your impulses, but that doesn't make the impulse you know, more valuable just because you can develop a philosophy around your impulse, right? We feel all sorts of things that we can't put into words and those feelings aren't of less value than those feelings that you can put into your words, right? Uh, poets are not inherently more valuable than someone who can't write poetry. We have instincts, right? And in certain situations, if we give you know, full vent to our instincts, that would be a highly adaptive response. In other situations, if we just give full vent to our instincts, that would be a maladaptive response. But the ability to provide an ideology and a philosophy and some, you know, worked out system of thought to back up what our evolutionary instincts is nice, but it's hardly determinative, right? It's not what makes for, for value, Right. Sometimes it makes for value. Sometimes it doesn't. So just because people can't articulate something as well as you do doesn't mean that they're necessarily of less value or that they have less significance. Right. Sometimes emotions are more compelling and more important than your worked out reasoning. But in his own kind of personal relationships. But anyway, those are just my vague thoughts on the matter. What do you guys think? And uh, she was wearing like practically no clothes. And the caption, you know, was some kind of Trump trumper sort of you know uh host of you know phrases and uh i i remember that and that was back in maybe like 2017 i remember for the first time thinking like so i've been reading a lot of books about 
Donald Trump, including Maggie Haberman's new book, Confidence Man, and Peter Baker's book, The Divider. And there's a lot of critique in there that Donald Trump does not have this well-developed, finely tuned political philosophy, that Donald Trump just has certain instincts and that you know somehow you know, the, these are very primitive. So let's uh, get Duvid into the show. So, Duvid, how's it going, man? Hey, Brokersham. If you want to go forward, I, I I didn't get rid of Maggie Haberman's book, but I saw her interviews, and I thought that was interesting. If you want to uh, give your full review, well, I was just making the point that uh, just because someone doesn't have this, you know, highly developed political philosophy, doesn't mean that they don't have you know, important things to say, that we have certain basic instincts that uh, often, you know, serve us pretty well, even though we can't quite articulate what, what's going on. For example, the, the power of Orthodox Judaism is not something for most people that primarily relies upon the beauty of the philosophy, right? For, for people who appreciate the Orthodox approach to life, who fall in love with Orthodox Judaism, it's it, there's some mystery in the practice of it that, that moves them. It, it's, not, it's not primarily a worked out system of thought. And so someone who resonates with the, the feelings and the interpersonal connections and the sense of the divine in Orthodox Judaism, even if they can't articulate it, it doesn't make them you know, somehow lesser humans or, or less valuable just because they can't articulate the philosophy of Orthodox Judaism. For me, Orthodox Judaism was something that I, I primarily experienced and had deep meaning to me. It wasn't primarily a philosophical system. I I, I studied a lot of Torah, and I, I studied books about Judaism, and I appreciated the, the philosophy and the theology and the thinking behind it. But what what made Orthodox Judaism so superior for me compared to other forms of Judaism was the experience of it, the existential experience of it. Frequently, it has moved me in ways that I, I can't articulate, but that doesn't make make me lesser or the experience lesser just because I can't put it in the in the finest philosophical terms. Is there anything you want to add on that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I remember Rabbi Kaplan at Orsamaic, a popular lecturer, um, I think he said he had only met one or two students that he thought became Balchubas because it was true. You know, almost all Balichuba become Balichuba because they think the lifestyle will work for them. And you, especially, you talked to uh, Cato, uh, uh, Joseph Cato, in terms of uh, you saying, like, well, do I really believe this? Versus saying, I think I could successfully integrate into a community and build up a happy family despite uh, the problems facing the world and politics is the same like okay i'm an intp uh, i did a stream on my channel today 13 books that changed my life and i think i was more philosophical because that's my personality type and i have a unique personality type that's a minority that's more uh, intellectually philosophically uh, based but uh, it's still you know lifestyle it's a life you know i even mentioned it many times like Orthodox Judaism was a lifestyle that I thought I could fit into and would work for me and match my personality personality type in many ways. And probably politics is the same way. Conservatism, um, you know, they thought out the issues versus it's a lifestyle like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a Republican or a Democrat or I'm going to get involved in this cause. There's social truths to it. And I'm always stressing to Charles Moskowitz because you know, God forbid we talk about like anti-Semitism almost every week and it's saying that 
a lot of people use anti-Semitism as a strategy, and the reason they use it as a strategy is because it works. And I think people in general uh, just fall into strategies, not necessarily because we thought it out and had like in-depth plans, but just because it worked. And so politics is about winning. Like Trump, uh, you know, we didn't we the Republicans chose someone who could win, and didn't really care much about anything else. Like Herschel Walker's the happened in the New York Times on like Herschel Walker still might win, and Republicans still might vote for him because at the end of the day, uh, elections are like popularity contest, and politics is about winning, as opposed to uh, cultural type things. And finding a lifestyle that uh, you know that we could fit into and be successful at. Right, we we do most things because of the way they make us feel, and sometimes that's dangerous. Right, you should not give uh, your, your feelings, you know, one hundred percent domination over your life. But sometimes your feelings will lead you to greater truths than your thinking. Frequently, our thinking is just an an artificial intellectualized attempt to try to come to terms with with what we're feeling we're trying to rationalize what we want to do like we we choose the direction we want to go in life whether it's towards god or towards a hedonistic life and then we try to rationalize what we're doing but the human being is not primarily driven by abstract intellectual concerns if you have the ability to think abstractly you will enlist that ability in support of what you want to do, which basically boils down to, you know, what you feel when you do certain things. So you've diminished going to synagogue because it hasn't felt great for you. But if you were to have, you know, more positive experiences in synagogue, real life interactions with Jews in synagogue, feeling like a valuable part of the community, then that's going to, you know, change your your approach to Judaism. Any thoughts? Well, I, you know, I just said I'm an INTP, and I use the expression work, and you use feelings, and it could be one of we're saying the same thing in the sense it feels good when it works, and it doesn't feel good when it doesn't work. So, you know, like, I become a Jew and go to synagogue, and, and it works. I've created a social structure and uh, something that works for my life and gives me relatively a successful life, so I feel good. If it didn't work, I wouldn't feel good about it. So I'm wondering if that's you know just our proclivity inclination, and are we saying the same thing when I say because it works, and you say because it makes you feel good? Yeah, I think we're, we're saying work, the same thing. Good. Because things that work are not going to make you feel bad. All right, if you if you go out and you do something that most people are unable to do, but you're able to do it easily, you're going to feel good about that. Like if you take on challenges that that most people struggle with, but you can do them easily, you're going to feel good about that. If you you go to social gatherings and you're able to you know navigate the gathering, get along with people, and uh, you're you're successful, you're able to you know accomplish what you want at that gathering. You're going to feel good about it. Similarly, if you feel good about where you're at, you're going to be much more likely to be successful at whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, because I use the expression anti-Semitism because it works. I would say generally anti-Semitism doesn't work. And that's why anti-Semitism in America is small. And you know, maybe in Arab countries or different countries where anti-Semitism is high, it works much better. And for the people that employ it, it probably to some extent works for them. Like if, if uh, um, 
I forget your exact expression, but uh, you know, uh, dissident, uh, ineffectual people choose ineffectual strategies. But you know, like relatively, okay, I'm going to become an Orthodox Jew because uh, I wasn't that popular or my life wasn't working out that good, so that I thought I could find a group that I would be able to uh, you know make with. And and because I'm you know half Jewish, I chose you know group I had ethnic affinity to. Or if you were going through troubles in your life, and uh, at that moment Judaism worked for you, but had things been going better, you probably wouldn't have chosen Judaism. It just happened to be the circumstances of that time where Judaism worked for you, and then as your life started turning better, that Judaism continued to work well enough with you that you stuck with it, that even though had you not been in a negative time, you might not have been in a situation where you would have done Judaism because it worked in the same way as a generic psychological, sociological process that would apply for anti-Semites, that uh, people are, you know, broken people and at the broken time that whatever reason, anti-Semitism is the strategy that works for them at that time. And they might stick with it if it continues to work. And if it doesn't work, they're less likely to stick with it. Right. I've spoken to Orthodox rabbis who work in uh, Bate Din, Jewish law courts that uh, administer conversions to Judaism. And they frequently told me that 99% of the people who apply to convert to Orthodox Judaism are crazy. And so usually people who convert to another religion, they're coming out of some you know, great personal crisis, right? Usually one does not, for example, convert to Judaism, you know, on the wings of success. It's it's usually you, you experience some you know, devastating failures that cause you to reassess how you, you operate in life and you see a more effective system for operating in life. And because you've been so humbled by your failures that you become open to something you otherwise would not be open to. So I was very sick when I became interested in Judaism. And in my illness, then as in now, when I get sick, I tend to see my life in a whole new light. I, I tend to lose many of the distractions that have kept me going. And I realize, oh, you know, I've kind of been fooling myself in this area, that area. And there are these, you know, gaping holes in my life. And out of that failure comes a humility and an openness to try things that I otherwise would not be interested in trying. And so I assume also for you, when you became interested in Orthodox Judaism, there was a large amount of humility there that uh, the, the default way that you had approached life was not satisfying, was simply not getting it done. And you got a glimpse, an intimation of a better way of living. And perhaps that's what led you to explore Orthodox Judaism. While if you were flourishing in, in your present life, when you were, I don't better know, for 14. Me, something that would have worked for me. That's something that's objectively better. Like, I'm going to say, oh, Orthodox Judaism was objectively better. But for whatever reason that mainstream society, I was failing, that Orthodox Judaism might work for me. Yeah, is is that is that what 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 happened for you? You got an intimation of a better way of living. Well, because you use the better way, like objectively, and I think you you mean like better objectively, or meaning better for me that it would better work for, for you, me. better for you. You you thought that this would be better for you, that you would you would thrive in this this new orthodox way of living compared to your your default approach to life. Yeah, I don't know, thrive, but saying it would work better for me 
than uh, what the you know the way it was brought up or my default. I didn't necessarily you know think I would thrive, but I would be more successful than I was in my former state of life or any of the other possibilities I could see uh, going down. And so how was your Shemini Atzeret and your Simchat Torah, these uh, traditionally very social ties for Jews? I, I Honestly, I, I didn't go to shul again. I said all the prayers. You know, I, I did all of the mitzvahs, um, but I didn't go to shul because, like, I mean, God forbid, I, I feel isolated from the community because I have been isolated from the community and uh you, you know, so I, I, I just didn't uh i didn't feel like i had uh it's hard to say why why i just didn't feel you know, like I, I was going to go to shul and then in the morning you know I, I decided not to and uh you know whether there were things in my head like oh they probably don't like me or uh you know i'm not sure what i'm going to do with my life or uh you know like i'm not a paying member or wh- whatever reason i just didn't go you know i was up in the morning i could have went and uh, you know, so it's tough to know what really motivates us or how to uh, you know, resolve an identity crisis because uh, you know, first, like you said, a lot of people you know, COVID nineteen. I went to shul because I went to shul, and uh, and then I stopped going to shul, so I've just stopped going to shul because uh, you know, like in Hebrew, they call like chazaka. Uh, you know, I do what I've been doing, so I haven't been going to shul. I didn't go to shul. Um, I could have came up with a bunch of reasons I should have or shouldn't have. Um, but in essence, I've been isolated from the community. I'm not part of it. And uh, for whatever reason, I, I've continued that as opposed to trying to reintegrate myself with the community. I'm not really sure you're just suffering this uh, identity crisis. Well, just as one mitzvah leads to another, you know, one act of isolation leads to another act of isolation. It's It's very hard to get out of an isolation spiral yeah and i'm not sure you know i mean you could look at any social context or like business and so it's just synagogue you know maybe you know i know people maybe you know someone would have invited me a meal maybe i would have struck up a conversation and you know one thing would have led to another and i would have been reintegrated into the community at some some level or maybe i would have just said the prayers and uh, went home and not spoke to anybody. Um, but, uh, you know, something has to drive me to pick up and go. And uh, so, you know, whatever drove me for decades of my life to, you know, just always do that, uh, once I stopped doing it, now I have to uh, revive, like, the reason or the... Um, motivation that uh, I had done it for years. Uh, you know, if it wasn't for COVID-19, I probably just would have done it because I'd always been doing it. But because uh, that caused me to stop doing it, now I need something to you know, reinvigorate that uh, motivation. Yeah, wh- whatever you look for in synagogue, you're going to find. So if you expect to go to synagogue and find a bunch of ganafim, a bunch of thieves, you're going to find that if you go to synagogue expecting to find a bunch of unfriendly people who are going to shun you, you're usually going to find that. If you go to synagogue and expect you know, a friendly situation, you're going to find that. If you 
if you go into almost any situation in life expecting certain things, you're going to find that. So I'm thinking about a few years ago, there was this uh, somewhat moderately mentally ill woman. And you know, there are quite a few, you know, mildly to moderately mentally ill people who, who go to synagogue and, and some of them hold down jobs. But uh, this woman, she'd gotten thrown out of one Orthodox synagogue in the community because she'd sent a note to the, the cantor saying that they, they were destined to get married and it kind of freaked the, the cantor out. And so she was asked to leave the synagogue. So she, she starts, she walks up to my synagogue that I was in at the time, and I'm, I'm standing outside with the security guard, and she comes over and she says, are you guys banning me? You know, am I, am I banned from this synagogue? And, and we say, no, no, you're, you're welcome to, to come in. But if you walk up to a synagogue expecting to get banned, you're, you're very likely to have that you know, to, to precipitate that situation. If you, if you're in a social group and you think, oh, they're going to exclude me, then that tends to happen. Like whatever's going on inside of us tends to play out socially. And so when we're feeling good about ourselves and, you know, looking forward to seeing other people, then social interactions tend to go much more smoothly. But when we're at a time of tremendous doubt and introspection about ourselves and our own life, we're likely to find things in in social situations that, that reinforce whatever darkness is going on inside of us. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, somewhat life is in many ways like that Choose Your Own Adventure book. I, I was, you know, thinking of, uh, when I did the stream today of the 13 books that changed my life. And I started with, uh, you know, like a chess book that I read when I was young. And I thought you know, when I was very young, I read, a whole bunch of choose your own adventure books. I, I read all of the ones at my local elementary school, probably like a hundred of them. Um, and I think life in many ways is a little bit uh, like that. And I don't think I had like a negative expectation, like, you know, realistic. Some people, you know, may not have been excited to see me, but I assume there would have been some people I would have been able to, you know, make conversation, talk uh, positive things. Um, I think it's more like the identity crisis that I'm, that I'm going through that just, uh, okay, I've been doing Judaism for decades, Orthodox Judaism, is it working for me? And then a question, well, maybe it's not working for me. Um, and then, you know, so should I keep on doing it? And then, well, what else am I going to do? You know, like I've, I've been doing it for decades. Like, like I, what, what, I can't even imagine doing something else. And so it's more the question of, uh, I think for me personally, like an identity crisis, because I don't think I had like a negative occasion and uh, my conflict within the Jewish community, I think has been relatively small and I've generally been pretty good at avoiding conflict. So uh, when, when people walk down the street kind of on on the lookout for the police, people who have, you know, tremendous fear and loathing for the police, they're much more likely to end up on the, the police radar. I mean, you can... You can sort of spot, you know, sketchy characters walking down the street who are just constantly looking around. Or someone walks into a room and they're making, you know, a bunch of furtive glances or you're interacting with someone and, and they're just doing these these kind of awkward, uh, quick, uh, the opposite of smooth. So, so 
awkward, I guess, would be the right. word. You know, they're they're going to stand out and and they're going to come to come to the attention of, of police or security guards because they're going to make other people feel uncomfortable. So I, I notice a lot of people feel intimidated and, and scared or upset just by the presence of police or just by the presence of security guards. Yeah, but I ran through my head like doubts, like oh, the synagogue maybe maybe has a different combination. Because there's only one synagogue in walking distance from me, and I, mean, I could have probably arranged a, a different one. You know, maybe they've changed the combination. You know, maybe I'm going to get there, and it's going to be someone who doesn't like me, who's going to be doing security at the door. But I mean, it's pretty unlikely. Uh, I think it's more an identity crisis. Because I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but I think generally, I've been a mind my own business or or doing business. I, you know, generally I. I go to places where I have business or it's clear what I'm doing. And if I went to synagogue, I, I would have said the prayers. I generally take the prayers seriously. Don't talk during prayers and uh, you know how to do the prayers. So even if I had just went in, said the prayers, didn't talk to anybody and left, um, which I thought about doing, or, you know, like I know a lot of people I, you know, all over that I probably, you know, could have spoke to people and brought up a conversation, maybe even got myself invited to, a meal it's just uh yeah i guess an identity crisis um i mean maybe you're comfortable that i thought i'd been comfortable like you like i was just going to do this the rest of my life and i still feel like doing that like i just like oh i've been an orthodox jew basically my whole adult life i always assumed i would do it the rest of my life but uh, for whatever reason um you know, when it came uh you know the morning time to go to shul I couldn't get myself uh, to go. So I don't know. What's the security situation like at uh, synagogues in Detroit? So in, in Beverly Hills and West Los Angeles, every every synagogue has at least one armed guard out front. And this, I, I notice, intimidates people. Like certain people are afraid to step up and even be questioned or have a, a wand waved over them or to have their you know bag opened up or to be asked any questions by an armed security guard that I notice that frightens a lot of people. But uh, do synagogues in Detroit have much security? Yeah, I would assume that you know, for the Sukkah holiday, there probably would have been a, a police officer. The Jewish community of Metro Detroit has, through the Federation, a group of mostly retired police officers that do security so the you know the the more upper class synagogues actually have either police or private security that's retired police officers and i would probably know them i'm generally the type that i would introduce myself say hello or say thank you to the security but yeah i could have assumed that uh, there probably would have been a police car outside and at least one of the official Jewish community uh, um, security services there, uh, maybe a congregation member with them by the door that would have been, uh, you know, able to tell them uh, whether, you know, this is someone they know or not. And it's been like that for years. Uh, it's expensive. So during COVID-19 for a period of time, they didn't have the, the security every week, every Shabbos. But I, I was almost guaranteed on Sukkah um, they would have had a, the police there. I'm not sure in L.A. if it's like that also where, like, on the holiday, they'll actually have the official police there. And, uh, you know, in the regular week will be private security. 
and I think it's generally a higher level, more expensive private security where you get a retired or former police officer that uh, you know costs more money than just a you know a rent a cop. Yeah, I mean there there are varying degrees of security. I mean on Yom Kippur and the Jewish holidays, there are a lot of LAPD, like in you know far extra number of LAPD on the streets in in the Jewish community, you know driving around. Uh, keeping an eye on things in addition to armed security guards. And then a lot more Jews are getting armed these days. A lot more Jews are getting certified to carry weapons. So Orthodox synagogues in particular are kind of bristling uh, redoubts of, of armed security. I mean, you try to you know mess with an Orthodox synagogue, you know, the odds are pretty good that at least one person, if not several people in the synagogue, has a concealed weapon permit and is... Has, has undergone, you know, firearms training. And uh, synagogues are not like easy pushovers as in days of yore. Do you shake hands with the police when you come and go to synagogue or at least say hi? It's my personality that uh, I know Deborah Lipstadt, that's one of her famous things where she's like in this uh, identity dilemma with her niece or something at, or, or kids at synagogue, whether she should tell them to say good Shabbos to the security guard or not. I'm not sure if you listen to Deborah Lipstadt, but she constantly tells that story. But I'm the type that uh, I say hello or usually make a point to introduce myself to uh, the police officer. Uh, is that your personality too? Yeah, generally speaking, yeah. I'm, I'm fairly friendly to police and uh, the maybe private um, security. Uh, so... I haven't volunteered. I think we talked about this before, where I was on the volunteer, uh, you know, I guess guard standing mm -hmm. you know, that just watches the door or the security cameras. And in Michigan, there was actually the Supreme Court case in New York. In Michigan, you don't have a right to concealed carry in a synagogue. It has to be approved by the board. So if there's one person or a person designated by the rabbi and the board of directors to carry a gun. I think Halsey had that problem. He said also where he, they didn't allow him to carry his gun to his synagogue, uh, but it has to be approved by the rabbi and the board. And, uh, you know, now, God forbid, they might have more than one person. Um, you know, before there was one person, and when I did uh, watch at the door, you know, they told me, uh, you know, if something happens, hit this button, and if it gets worse, you know, tell this guy he's got a gun. Yeah. So speaking of books that uh, most most influence our life, there, there was a book on screenwriting that, that I read about 20 years ago, and it was based on the teachings of Joseph Campbell. It was dealing with archetypes, and one of the archetypes it described was the archetype of the, of the border guard. So people who who kind of stand between you and where you want to go. And I, I used to always resent these kind of people. Because they would they would determine if I'd get to cross over. So enforcers, you know, people who would determine whether gatekeepers. or not, yeah, gatekeepers, Is that than the gatekeeper? yeah, gatekeeper. I used to always hate gate 
gatekeepers. And then I read this book on screenwriting. I learned about the gatekeeper as an archetype and realized that they just have a particular job to do and that there's no inherent reason I need to, you know, fear or, or hate uh, gatekeepers. And that was like a transformative moment for me. So I, I think a lot of us kind of go through life with, you know, an instinctive hatred for certain types of people, whether it's a, could be, you know, someone in religious authority or it could be a policeman or it could be bosses or someone who reminds you of your father or, or gatekeepers. And then you can have a transformative experience and you realize that these, that this whole group of people that you instinctively hated, that they had a, they had a valuable role to play. So I've often immersed myself quite deeply in various subcultures and there are always gatekeepers that you have to maneuver and, and get their approval to enter a, a subculture and at first, I just hated the gatekeepers. But after the, reading this book, I realized that gatekeepers play a valuable role. And I learned to extend my empathy towards the gatekeeper and to understand what their role was. And I was able to let go of my instinctive fear and, and hatred for, for gatekeepers. Have you had any sort of uh, psychological hangups with regard to gatekeepers? I mean, definitely. Because, I mean, when you're on the ups or doing well, the gatekeepers are usually gatekeeping for you. Yeah. And when you're on the low doing bad, they're, they're gatekeeping against you. Yeah. So when you're on the outs and you're worried that, you know, they don't want you there and the gatekeeper is going to keep you out as opposed to when you're comfortable on the inside, I'm on the inside and the gatekeeper is keeping the people that I don't want there out. Uh, you know, so from that perspective and you also kind of like, violence people like to do what they're good at so if you're not a violent person and you're saying that the person's like you know that they enjoy violence i think the expression the army we don't run away from trouble we run towards it uh and i mentioned when i when i was day trading that uh you know like the entourage that my boss was basically always nice but he didn't feel that way so when he wanted to be mean he outsourced it to someone else so like whenever i wanted to get yelled at I would come into the office and there was this other guy who was just kind of always a jerk that would yell at me and he would just sit there and let that guy yell at me. And I, I kind of interpreted it. It was really my boss yelling at me. He just doesn't have it in him to do that. So he outsources it or he'd kind of like an Israeli, uh, you know, friend that uh, wasn't making in the business. And, uh, you know, he basically bankrolled and he was there you know, like to intimidate, you know, he's just looking like, you know, like I would love to beat you up. Uh, you know, you give me the word, you know, the boss, and I would be happy to bounce this guy out. And, you know, so in that respect, like, you know, these guys were gatekeepers and they kept me in a state of fear. And that was the point. That was their job. Uh, but, you know, when I was doing better, they did that for me, that, that you know, like uh, like security and bouncers at the door. I'm sure, you know, in L.A. or just at synagogue and social scenarios, uh you know, it's like that, and it's a natural order of, uh, you know, entourages or, or social hierarchy and ranking. And I, you know, generally when I have debated counter-Semites and I talk about, you know, Jews, elites are more friendly to Jews because, you, you know, like I, I talk about mortgage brokers and insur life insurance and lawyers and accountants and dentists and doctors, and you're saying like, well, I'm a property owner, a business owner. Um, you have a bank account and I like my insurance brokers and my stock broker 
and you, you know your Jewish stereotypes of uh, lawyers and doctors and accountants. Uh, but if you're in a bad financial situation, you don't have any of those insurance. The only time you've dealt with a lawyer or an accountant was then they were telling you that you have to do things you don't want to do. And so I think Jews in general, for you know, to, to non-Jews and especially counter-Semites, that we're the gatekeepers. And so if you're from the elite, you like the Jews because we're keeping the gates in a way that benefits them, that when they call their lawyer or their insurance, you're like, yep, policy, it's good. You're like, yep, you got this money in the bank or, or yep, you're on this side of the law. But if you're on the other side, you know, and it's the Jewish lawyer or accountant telling you like, nope, you got to pay. That's the law. So uh, I don't know if you th thought about that perspective as, you know, to non-Jews or counter-Semites that we, we're kind of gatekeepers. And that's why a lot of people don't like us. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but I looked up the gatekeeper archetype. It says also called a threshold guardian before being able to enter a strange world or obstructing the treasure that is the goal, a hero is likely to encounter an opponent in the form of a gatekeeper or guardian. The term threshold guardian refers specifically to the point in the hero's journey between the ordinary world the hero must leave and the unknown world she must enter. In other words, the threshold between Act 1 and Act 2. So I saw you talking in the chat about Scott Bernstein. So I just looked him up, best-selling true crime writer, uh, organized crime historian, American mafia expert, and I think you went to school with Scott Bernstein. Anything you want to say about Scott Bernstein? Yeah, I think even when I was school, I'd kind of known that in Detroit, there's the what was called the Purple Gang, which was the Jewish mafia, and it goes back decades. And I guess you know some of the main members were Bernstein's, and he actually said like he knew Mayor Lansky, or I mean his like great uncle. Uh, you know, like a known Mayor Lansky who was at his like bar mitzvah or something like that. I don't know him well, but uh, you know, there's an alumni high school alumni and this is of the elite private school I went to uh, that he's part of. And so I saw that he became, uh, I mean, he's kind of a big, big mouth in the high school alumni. Also, he's on the news pretty often. And uh, you know, so I, they made a clip about me with uh, Bruno, the Doberman, God forbid, and I saw on the same channel had Scott Bernstein. So I guess he's a prom prominent uh, mob talk person. And I was mentioning today in my stream, I mentioned on your stream that to some extent, becoming an Orthodox Jew is like joining the mob, not in the sense that uh, you're know, like all Orthodox Jews are part of the mob or like a crime syndicate, but generally that, uh, especially in Brooklyn, there's a connection between the mob and uh Orthodox Jews, like, you know, we live next to each other. We have partnerships in business. And he was mentioning, like, Scott Bernstein focuses on crime and drama and stories. And I think, you know, John Wolf, who's been in your chat forever, has started doing his own stream and mob talk. And, uh, you know, you also, I guess, have had mob connections. And, I mean, to a certain level, if you, if you just want to talk, like, there's the violent arm of the Jewish community there's the violent arm of the Catholic community, of the Italian community. Uh, but as a whole, most people never experience that violent arm. And it's also kind of like the gatekeeper. Like I mentioned, you know, my boss ran a business and he was always the nice guy, but he had a few tough guys that worked for him. And if you, you know, you made him mad, um, 
you know, he, he wouldn't have, uh, you know, those tough guys would have bounced you out on his whims, but he wouldn't have done it. Wouldn't have been him. And it's like that for all communities. And, uh, that dynamic, I'm not so much into crime or, uh, um, you know, like Bernstein is that he focuses on, uh, sensational stories and, and drama and gossip and actual stories of crime. I was more focusing on, you know, the business connection and, uh, you know, God forbid the occasional use of violence that I said, most Jews never feel that arm, but you know, when you're part of an Orthodox group, it's just like, like it makes you feel more comfortable having that cop outside. And if you're in an Orthodox synagogue, I don't know, like palsy or something like your JDL guy, there might be a JDL guy in your synagogue and he might be like, you don't really want to get that close for him. He might, uh, you know, touch you or he might, uh, you know, like, but he's he's probably not going to beat you up. You might want to avoid him. He might be kind of a bully, but you assume like largely he's there to protect you and he's going to, he's on your side. And like you mentioned, the gatekeeper, once you get past the gatekeeper, he's now your gatekeeper, like in the hero's journey that, uh, you know, there's the threshold to becoming a hero when you're on the outside. But once you get to the inside, now that same person that was uh, an obstacle to you is a benefit to you. Yeah, and I'm just thinking of some of the, the similarities between Orthodox Judaism and joining the mob. Mob one, when you convert to Orthodox Judaism, they, they make it very clear you're converting for life. Right? This is a lifelong commitment. And as you become immersed in Orthodox Judaism, it kind of gets its tentacles in into you. So it, it very much feels like a lifelong commitment. Also, both being in the mob and being in Orthodox Judaism are quintessential examples of in-group versus out-group morality. So mobsters are not particularly careful about their ethical treatment of people outside the group and strongly identifying in-groups, whether they're Japanese, Chinese, or Orthodox Jewish, they also tend to be fairly relaxed about uh, how they deal with out-groups and incredibly committed to how they deal with in-groups. So they're both tribal ways of life that are very much focused on the family and very much focused on doing business with, with people you can trust who are in your in-group, who share your way of life. There's particular foods, a particular culture, particular customs that uh, all go together. So, yeah, I, I think there are a surprising number of similarities between joining the mob and, and joining Orthodox Judaism. Any, any similarities that you see that you'd like to add to? Yeah, definitely. And I was saying they're actually connected because there's usually direct connection between the Orthodox community and the the mafia, especially the Italian mafia, where you might not know the connections as a low-level Jew, but you know the connections uh, exist. And, and you know, I would add to that um, the accepting, I mean, you might have touched, glanced on it, but the accepting of friends and foes, where like, generally, like, I don't hate Arabs or Palestinians or I don't really want to go to war with Iran or, you know, even like anti-Semites, I'm talking to like counter-Semites, <laughs> pardon me, but generally there's that kind of thing. Like, you know, you, you're now part of the mob and your enemies are our enemies. And that's why, you know, you become powerful when you join the mob because you're part of a group and now you don't want to be this guy's enemy anymore because he's part of a group that will protect them. Um, but you have, uh, the problem is that you take on their enemies and also their friends, 
So when, like I said, when I was in Orthodox Jews, like in the business world, I had all these contacts in everywhere. You like in terms of all the businesses, day trading, real estate, um, you know, stocks, insurance. There were people in the synagogue that people that I knew that they could refer me to and I could give a name like I, I know this rabbi and I would be in good with. And then there are also the, you know, the enemies like this guy's not our friend and you're part of our group. And so it's inherited these, uh, you know, group conflicts upon you. And, and there's just such an incredible sense of camaraderie in in Orthodox Judaism, like there's a a relaxed ability to speak your mind, and you don't have to explain an awful lot of things that you do have to explain when you're with non-Orthodox Jews. So, I I would imagine that it's fairly similar when when you're in the mob. I mean, you can you can let your hair down. You're you're with people like you, and you don't have to explain so much. As opposed to when you're an Orthodox Jew and you're primarily interacting with non-Orthodox Jews, there's just so much that you have to explain. It, it's much more tiring. Yeah, you know, there's a path laid out for you probably that you could really largely just do what people tell you, and you'll have a decent life. I mean, the mob you might have more likely to end up in prison or something violent happened to you, but mostly likely not. Most people in the mob, you know, like, okay, they're going to start working in construction or, or waste management. Maybe at some point they'll be called upon to do something criminal. And even if they do, you know, get caught or in prison, that they'll, you'll be part of a prison gang or when they get out um, in, in terms like there's women, you know, saying like, okay, I'm just a geek. Like I would have never had the courage to, uh, you know, ask a girl out. But, you know, in the Orthodox community, they'll set you up. So, like, in that way, the mob in Orthodox Judaism, um, you could just do what they tell you. And and uh, you have, uh, like, like we said, a life that works for me. That if I'm just out there on my own as a lone goy, it's a cold, scary world out there. And I don't know if I'll make any friends or meet anybody or have any successes. But, like, you know, at least I'm, I'm in the mob. I'm, you know, I'm, in the, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I have a life laid out for me that will likely work yeah and you you mentioned it in the chat that you've had some experience dealing with organized crime could you say more about that um well i day traded i worked at you know firms and uh i mean what, what's actually mafia um a lot of them had cousins or you could tell the connection but you said okay these are our italian partners and they're part of the mob and, uh, you know, their connections. And some of them you could actually trace names or, or cousins. And, and these were legitimate businesses to some extent, and especially in the construction trade. Um, so I said, like, when you join the mob, people think crime sig sig uh, crime syndicate or something like that. But uh, I think, like, if you're Italian or, like, Catholic in Italian neighborhoods, it's kind of like, being an Orthodox Jew, you join a gang and the gang is a bunch of kids that work for the same construction company and they might do some crimes. There might, you know, be called upon like there has to be you know, violence and, and, and you got to do what the, the gang demands of you. But most of it's not crime related. And uh, um, so that's why it, like in New York, uh, you know, it's just construction like Jews are management. And uh, we don't do labor like that. And so we have, uh, you know, mostly Hispanic. But if you're if you're 
doing better in the real estate or stock industry, you have you're more likely to have Italian partners. I know you from pornography. You talked about you know the Jewish Italian connections and like pornography is not a crime syndicate. It's more criminal than construction. Uh, but you know, within construction, there's people that are in and out in prison. And even on you know a lot of uh, construction places, the majority of the people have been in and out of prison. And you know it's just like oh well, they're in the mob. You know they beat somebody up or, or some people may have even killed somebody. It is like, well, they're in the mob, but what's that matter to me? They're doing construction as long as they do their job. Um, and, you know, saying if you're higher up in uh, like the stock brokerage firm where, where uh, you have Italian partners, I mean, these guys are may also be lawyers or MBAs. And uh, so I, I think mafia has a negative connotation where you're talking about crime syndicate as opposed to, uh, you know, the family network of Italian Catholic families that uh, run businesses and have, uh, you, know, you know, Jewish partners. Right. If you don't have effective police, if you don't have effective institutions in your society like Eastern Europe and, and Russia after the fall of communism, it's no more natural and even healthy to have the development of mafia. So many people have this instinctive negative reaction to mafia or negative reaction to the word tribal. But a tribal or mafia organization is often an adaptive, healthy response to a, a world around you that is unsafe and filled with, with turmoil. So, I mean, Jews understand this, uh, Italians understand this. I, I don't think uh, Anglos perhaps understand it as well as other ethnic minorities. But in a, in a difficult, confusing, unsafe world, it, it makes sense that people would want to seek out the, the protections that, that come with organized crime. And generally speaking, organized crime is a lot less lethal than disorganized crime. It, it's disorganized crime that I fear much more than organized crime, because organized crime knows that to make the maximum amount of money, they, they don't want to be murdering civilians, right? That They want to keep their noses clean with regard to civilians and operate in a way that is most efficient. It, it's disorganized crime that, that uh, is usually the most scary. Uh, any thoughts on how mafia tribal links are frequently very healthy and an adaptive way to deal with a confusing environment? Yeah, I mean, mafia just means family. Yeah. And I know, like, Jews, like Israelis, like mishpacha, um, you know, people say, like, you know, in Hebrew, you know, mishpacha, you're just like your family. And it's kind of like, well, you're mafia. And uh, in that sense, um, you know, let's say mafia just means family. It doesn't mean organized crime. And if you're talking about the organized Italian community that includes the whole community, including uh, the criminals. So, I mean, you could look at Orthodox Judaism like that. I mean, we were talking about things that shocked us um, was a lot of Orthodox Jews are in and out of prison or arrest, trouble with the law, mostly for financial things. And so if it's Italians and it's violence, or Hispanics and drug dealing, people don't go away. So you're in a large synagogue and they're extended. And it's also extended family networks. Like big rabbis usually come from rabbinic families and have hundreds of cousins. And it's known, like if you're in Borough Park and there's a major rabbi, their cousins and family are also people in power in the community all over the place. So if you're just a lone convert or Balchuva, you want to be connected with 
a powerful family and like i said the connections like that you know like you have jobs uh you know possibly you know shidduchs dating um housing there's someone in the community like okay like speak to my cousin he owns apartments or speak to you know my cousin there he'll give you a job and the parallels the exact same in the italian community because you know through the catholic church where you have large extended family networks and in order to rise in the community you have to make yourself subservient to you know the family which is usually a selective family uh, like in judaism would be a rabbinic family that is has a token leadership opinion uh in a position and uh people don't go away like if you're part of the orthodox community even if you do bad things you're still going to be there so if you're in a very large synagogue network in new york all the people that have been in and out in prison still go to synagogue they're still cousins with people and uh in that it might be exactly parallel to you know the italian except you know, most Jews are in and out of prison for financial crimes, and maybe, you know, the Italians are in and out of prison for violent crimes. Now, in your list of your 13, 13 books that changed your life, you, you mentioned uh, Cultural Critique, is that right, by Kevin McDonald? Yeah, I included that because um, I think it did change my life, and I put that in terms of my whole streaming and just the concept of group conflict, even though, like, you know, call group evolutionary strategy you know i dedicated my life to judaism i had never you probably also maybe if you say the book even you as a you know grown man you did you know you were a fully uh mature grown man before you came across the book but i had never looked at judaism in the light of a group strategy and when i saw it i was like you're right it is a group strategy and though i'm still philo-semitic and uh part of this group strategy it changed my interpretation that like it was like i never thought about it as a group strategy and yes i do now see it as a group strategy and not only judaism um but i see human interaction in general in a different light through group strategy and group conflict and i think anti-semitism in terms of kevin mcdonald and a lot of jews are you know, we're all worried about anti-semitism and now that because i read that book i said well anti-semitism is just kind of conflicting group strategy and group conflict and if yeah. i hadn't read that book or heard about that i would probably be like the majority of the rest of the jews or you were just like oh, you know why do they hate us or you know as opposed to more rational like well it was group conflict and competitive group strategies yeah i mean it, it does influence the, the way you see the world it does open up new vistas even though i think there are many excellent rejoinders to to kevin mcdonald but this idea that different groups have different interests and that the what's good for one group is not necessarily good for another group these basics of, of group conflict I, I think that that part of his work very much stands up and if people want to understand how the world works that these are important concepts because uh, without this awareness of group conflict, people tend to have the attitude, you know, whatever's good for, for blacks is good for America, whatever's good for GM is good for America, what is good for Jews or uh, Mexican Americans or women or, or homosexuals, you know, what, whatever is good for one group is automatically good for all groups. But groups are frequently in conflict. They, they frequently 
have very different ways of understanding life and operating in life. And what helps one group get ahead is often at the expense of another group. So just thinking about civil rights legislation, for example, it undoubtedly helped many black people in the 1960s that they could no longer be discriminated against on the basis of race in lodging. On the other hand, for many older people who relied on the income of renting out a spare room or a guest house, and, and now they were faced with a law that they, they couldn't racially discriminate, uh, that legislation came at, at the expense of their feeling of inner security and their, their safety and their welfare. So what's good for one group, not necessarily good for other groups. And that's, that's an important insight that comes from Kevin McDonald's work that still holds up, even though there are other powerful critiques of much of the rest of his work. Anything you want to add on that? Yeah, definitely. And I still, I'm not saying I agree with Kevin McDonald in his thesis that Jews have been a negative influence in the West. Um, you know, might argue or we might even agree with Nathan Kaufness, but it did open my eyes to that. Yes, we do have a group strategy and group conflict is at the center of anti-Semitism. So I didn't say necessarily agreed with his thesis of the book, but it opened my eyes. And I did I didn't do book recommendations. These were books that factually changed my life. And I mentioned like in high school, uh, um, I popped on this channel, this guy, Thorpe, Abel Thorpe and his daughter are, are streaming. It was interesting. It reminded me in high school, I'd read this book, Beat the Dealer by Edward Thorpe on Blackjack. And you know, I hadn't thought about that for decades, but I really studied that book. And, uh, and I'm not sure if you ever heard of Jesse Livermore. And there's a famous book called Reminiscence of a Stockbroker. And I was just thinking about that uh, today when I made this list. And it's not necessarily a great book, but when I started day trading, they told us to read this book. And it's just, you know, 1923 book about kind of like a random smart guy who beats the stock market and, you know, biography of his ups and downs. Uh, but, you know, I'm not even a book recommendation, but that's the book I read. And while I was a successful day trader, I didn't study a bunch of economics. I read two books. I read a book called The Electronic Day Trader that went over the basis of like the new internet and how to trade in this book, Reminiscence of a Stockbroker, a 1923 book about like a country guy who comes to New York and makes a whole bunch of money on the stock market. So it just happened to be that that book was the one that I read and it influenced my life. So Kevin McDonald, I'm not necessarily making this a book recommendation or saying it would change your life, but I think that that book in and of itself or the hype around the book changed the way that I perceived and interacted with the world because I'd never really thought about Judaism as a group strategy. And after I saw it that way, now I look at it that way, even though I disagree with uh, you know many of his findings, or even if I did agree with his finding, I'm still you know kind of on the side of the Jews. It just uh, let me understand things in a way that I see most people don't understand. I also included The Creature of Jekyll Island, uh, as kind of a conspiratorial book. But once I read that book, it was kind of like no turning back. And um, the mechanism for like bailouts and uh, the Fed uh, that even though I, you know, like I, I follow uh, economics and watch C-SPAN and try to be mainstream, that there's kind of no turning back. I read The Creature of Jekyll Island and that conspiratorial mechanism um, is embedded in me. And, you know, God forbid, it's probably like that with anti-Semitic literature 
on the alt right where a people maybe come across a book and they will that you know that's like a magic key mechanism that explains things and uh it works for a person for a certain period of time and your know, day trading didn't work long term i did it for a few years uh, but it was this book uh, you know reminiscence of a stockbroker that uh put in my head this concept that like yeah you could just be a guy who's really smart and beat the stock market even if you're not educated okay david i'm going to move on any final words for this evening yeah thanks for having me on um i've been following that kind kanye west but uh uh you know if the story goes on maybe we'll talk about it uh, uh more but uh yeah i appreciate talking and uh yeah god bless have a great night okay take care david so let me play a little bit more here from uh, Richard Spencer's analysis of on Kanye the part West. Of many people who participated or supported, there was a kind of retreat into Christianity, and uh, maybe there's, you know, there'd, there'd be a certain amount of psychologizing one could go into. Yeah, so this is a conversation between Richard Spencer and his uh, supporters on Substack, and they're mentioning that many people who used to be into the alt right are now into Christian nationalism because it's much more socially acceptable. To explain that, but it was like there was a kind of uh, a sense that people, a lot of people in the movement, just weren't ready for the blowback they got. They felt like they needed to sort of validate themselves and justify. Right, a lot of people not ready for the blowback they receive. So many people take on heroic quests. Many people take on heroic roles. Many people are willing to throw down and sacrifice. But when it comes time to actually pay the price, all right, they're not so tough. All right, there are many pains that you only realize are, you know, far, far more painful than what you want to pay. You only realize that in retrospect when you experience them, right? When you're just behind your keyboard and you're a keyboard warrior, you think that you can handle when it, when it feels like the world's coming down around your sh shoulders. ...by themselves to broader conservative America, and the embrace of Christianity seemed to me to be a big part of that. But that's what I yeah. always kind of go back to when I see this Christian element of this new alt-right. It definitely, definitely was a lot of it going on right after Charlottesville. It was a big change. Oh, yeah. It was dramatic. And it was definitely aimed at me to a large degree. Um, I think even then it was, I'm just a normal nationalist kind of retreat of saying, like, I'm not one of these... Now, was it really... Was it really primarily aimed at uh, Richard Spencer. I mean, I'm sure he experienced that, but I think the falling apart of the alt-right was not primarily with regard to aiming anything at Richard Spencer. It was a way of life that stopped working, right? Richard Spencer played a huge role in making it toxic. I mean, I, I can't, can't think of anyone on the right who did more damage to Donald Trump and the MAGA movement than Richard Spencer. And what makes Richard such a compelling uh, commentator is that he doesn't care <laughs> about how many people he hurts, right? He feels no custodial sense of, of care towards people who listen to him or people who follow him. He's absolutely reckless. He has absolutely no regard for the consequences of what he says, which makes him a lot of fun to listen to because careful, responsible people right? Not necessarily so fun to listen to. If you're careful, you're very likely responsible. If you're a responsible person, you're very likely careful. Careful and responsible don't tend to make for exciting live streaming. It's like with talk radio, right? The money in talk radio is not in being right. The money in talk radio and in live streaming is in being interesting. So Richard Spencer's consistently interesting. Now, I try to put a premium on as much as possible. I try to be right.
And so I'm willing to sacrifice a whole bunch of interesting to, to be right. So when I, I was describing my show to friends, they say that that sounds kind of boring because it's much more interesting to be for the flat earth, to be for uh, voter fraud conspiracies or COVID conspiracies or, or this or that conspiracy where you take on the conventional wisdom and talk radio. All right. Again, that's, that's kind of a conspiratorial approach to life where the elites are out to screw you, but I'm fighting for you, the, the little guy, and we're going to take back this country from these dastardly elites. And so I'm thinking about a 2016 article I read on Sports Talk Radio where Colin Coward has made the point that the money is in being interesting, not in being right. There's no money in being right when it comes to sharing your opinion on the radio or on live streams. The money is being interesting. And so Richard Spencer is incredibly interesting because he feels so little concern with the consequences of what he has to say. Tattooed trailer park lunatics. I'm actually just like you. I'm just a conservative nationalist. And, you know, I'm a Trump fan. I think there was a, a major retreat in that sense. And I think that is that a, a move almost kind of, not necessarily in, in, invariably, but, but that move kind of spills over into something else where, you know, if they say they're a nationalist now, they don't say I'm a normal nationalist. They say that I'm a Christian nationalist. And some of them have just retreated into Christianity altogether. Um, yeah, it is pretty. So in this live stream, Richard is saying, you know, Kanye West, he can't present a coherent worldview. He's no, he's no political philosopher. He doesn't have you know, a political agenda that, that makes sense. Well, Kanye West, the rapper, I've never listened to Kanye West. I don't listen to, to rap. I have no interest in that type of music. But I don't expect Kanye West to be a political philosopher. To critique Kanye West for not being a political philosopher is to make a category error. It's like critiquing Richard Spencer for not being a rapper, right? Some people are, you know, just incredibly compelling, uh, provocative personalities, but they may have very little compunction about being right, right? They're agenda, their appeal is that they're so provocative and interesting, like a, a Richard Spencer, but you don't want that type of personality checking the engines on a plane before it, it takes off, right? You don't want that sort of personality doing your accounting. I mean, Donald Trump is an incredible risk taker, but not a very effective leader. So he's kind of similar to Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer, not a good leader, incredibly compelling you know, live stream personality. Fascinating psychologically speaking, and just in terms of uselessness and the sense that it just becomes this incoherent, incohate ideology. There's nothing inherently inferior about an incoherent, inchoate ideology unless you look at it through the lens of, is this coherent? All right. But we are driven by all sorts of incoherent, inchoate things. And sometimes those incoherent, co inchoate things are more powerful, more adaptive, more useful to us, more of a sense of power and energy and connection with other people and with a meaningful life and a sense of the transcendent than that which is coherent and meaningful and, you know, philosophically rational. Of resentment that is what they are kind of putting forward. And Kanye West is perfect. So 
Richard almost never has a good word to say about anyone else on the right. All right. He wants you know, right-wing punditry exclusively to himself. And that makes him a lot of fun because he always has these very sharp, you know, biting, entertaining uh, critiques of virtually everyone else on the right, including Kanye West. And, and what makes it so compelling in part is that you, you feel the resentment in both Donald Trump or Richard Spencer is like, at core, why is Kanye West getting attention that better belongs to me? Now, why is Kanye West getting money that better belongs to me? Now, why is someone else articulating a right-wing perspective and getting success, money, attention, love, adulation? All that stuff better belongs to me. That's very clearly uh, what drives Richard and what drives Donald Trump. How shocking that the right is turning to a uh, charismatic but highly narcissistic billionaire who says incoherent stuff and has a weakness for conspiracy theories. Never saw that kind. <laughs> yes. It's very sad. What's really sad is that uh, Rich is not getting all the money and adulation and attention and power as being the premier right-wing intellectual of our time. That's what chokes him up. I don't know. I, I find it very, very discouraging. I do feel like I'll never have a place in the American right. And I... Yes, I feel this is very sad, very discouraging. Why? Why does Richard find this so sad and so discouraging? Because other people who he regards as distinctly inferior to him, all right, are getting attention, fame, money, and adulation. Yes. It's very sad. I don't know. I, I find it very, very discouraging. I do feel like I'll never have a place in the American right. And I had this place in it just for this like brief moment. But even then, um, I, you know, like I, I don't, Jim Goad said that Tucker told him when they went out to dinner or something that, oh, I like Richard Spencer. I just don't like the fact that he's an atheist or whatever. So it was almost a kind of funny statement of, you know, I'm not offended by any of his racial views. You know, it's, a, you know, anyway, you can take that for what it is. Uh, the other Fox people were, were pretty hostile, but um I don't know. Just speaking personally, I do feel like I have absolutely no place. This is so similar to Donald Trump. Like the prism through which Richard views life is whether or not he will get attention, money, and power. And how do people feel about him? Right? That's what it boils down to. Like he will make, you know, philosophically rational arguments, but what it comes down to is this emotional, you know, are other people getting love and adulation and money and fame that more properly belongs to me? In the American right. <laughs> I, I just can't. I, I just can't even with them, really. So, uh, uh, out of curiosity. That, uh, uh, Jim Goad was uh, at the dinner of Carlson. Did I hear that right? That's what he told me, yeah. Oh, was and I don't think he has any... No, no, it was a few years. I mean, it was probably four years ago. Okay. Um, again, I don't think he has any reason to lie. And, and, and Jim is a pretty straight Shoot, I, I don't see really see Jim Goat as like any one of these liars or something that you do find on the right quite a bit. I think he's I think he's telling the truth. 
yeah, it's probably true. That's like a big theme of his writing, um, his uh, relationship with people who are dishonest. And he's like this guy who's, uh, um, uh, um, he sees himself as this honest, uh, innocent uh, uh, person in the middle of all this dishonest. So I've been a fan of the National Football League since about 1977. So I came to America in May of 1977. I had a whole summer ahead of me where I didn't know many people at Pacific Union College in the Napa Valley. And so I spent pretty much every day in the library. I started out just reading books about World War II. Then I transitioned over to reading the back issues of Christian Science Monitor. Then I transitioned over to reading the back issues of Reader's Digest magazine. Then I transitioned to reading all the back issues of Time magazine. Then I went through Newsweek magazine, all the back issues going back to the 1920s. I didn't read every single issue, but I looked at every single issue, and I'd pick out the articles that interested me. I went through Time, Newsweek, Life magazine, and then I went through Sports Illustrated, all the back issues back to the 1950s, and became quite uh, compelled by by the drama of, of sports. I was listening to Skip Bayless on his podcast the other day saying that he doesn't know of any TV show or movie about sports that's nearly as compelling as the the real thing. So that's a huge difference, right? right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, so Richard, uh, yeah, go, go back to what you said about uh, a place in the right. I'm curious if you could ever find a place in the bulwark, for example. So you're talking about the never Trump kind of thing? Uh, yeah, pretty much the uh, jaded neocons. So you ever like find any common ground with them at all? Well, um, kind of. I don't. I don't think they, there's no reason for them to ever reach out to me or something. That, like you know, they don't gain anything from that. And um, I don't know. It is kind of funny. I had a little DM exchange with David Frum, believe it or not, um, about six months ago when the war was beginning. And um, he was surprised that he, I think he just expected that I was going to come out like, you know, Putin should conquer Europe and America too, or something. And um, I don't know if he even thought I might be dissembling or something, but he just kind of, we just talked over DMs for a little bit. We've done that, believe it or not, uh, before. And uh, yeah, I was just basically saying, um, he was like, you're carving out a kind of niche. It's like, you're almost like putting forth a, the cold, a neo-cold war with Russia will kind of promote a certain level of centrism, which, you know, again, I have said that. I'm not, <laughs> not sure I'm even right about that, but um it might be wishful thinking but um yeah i mean i i feel like i i do feel like i have a different conception of a lot of these neocons now and that so much of my own like personal trajectory was coming of age during the iraq war and just you know lashing out at anything a neocon said as you know just some kind of evil scheme on behalf of israel or something you know i just i just really was you know absolutely against the invasion of iraq and saw the neocons as the enemy and so on um but uh, you know i don't know um is the bulwark kind of like more correct on a lot of their political analysis i mean i think so um are they correct about maga descending into madness i mean yes uh, as i said you know a few weeks ago when liz cheney lost her uh congressional primary in wyoming Ah, I just remember the point I wanted to make about the NFL. So Skip Bayless made this point that whenever you see an NFL player uh, become born again and starts organizing study groups with his fellow teammates, uh, that player is always on the, the descent in, in his career. You, you, you can see it with like Deion Sanders with the Dallas Cowboys circa 1999. So to succeed in the NFL, it often helps to be a jerk, right? It's a violent, dangerous sport where the the kind of mindset 
that uh, helps one to succeed tends to be, you know, selfish and, and cruel. So Richard is, is so compelling with coming up with new ideas, new perspectives, you know, fresh takes because he doesn't care about the consequences, just like an NFL player, you know, throwing his body at the ball carrier doesn't care about the long-term consequences to his body or to, you know, his family or whether he's going to break the other player's neck. And so that sort of recklessness, it frequently makes for more compelling football players. It frequently makes for, for more compelling live stream personalities. Like, you know, Richard has access to a far wider palette than to someone whose primary concern is being right. If your primary concern is being responsible, if your primary concern is the, the welfare of someone who might listen to you and be enchanted by the idea that you're presented, then you can only paint from a much narrower palette. But Richard's able to access so many more ideas because he is not weighed down by concerns about safety, responsibility, uh, being right. He doesn't care how many people's lives he helped to destroy with his his movement, his, his ideas, his charisma. He doesn't care if he leads a million people off a cliff as long as he has a parachute. And I don't criticize Richard for this or don't criticize him you know very much for this he's he's not a responsible man he's not a pro-social man he's a me first provocateur who's incredibly entertaining and compelling as a personality I mean nobody else comes up with as many hot takes as Richard Spencer because almost nobody else has you know ZFA zero F's given right Richard just says zero consideration for for other people for other countries for other movements for his follower philosophers uh, for his followers the consequences of his philosophies like he's not a partisan for any political party or philosophy or movement or country he doesn't care what or who he burns down and that makes him incredibly compelling right now if you are hamstrung by feelings of safety and responsibility and trying to be a positive influence in the world you're never going to be able to sling out as many new ideas as a richard spencer you're going to be hamstrung by considerations for you know what will be the consequences of what i say on the whole variety, the whole panoply of people who might listen to me, and there's a chance that they might take something I say seriously. So Richard gets to paint with this incredibly broad palette. He's not also constrained by reality, right? He, he lives in delusion. He thinks that he can cryptically influence things. In, in many ways, he's a lot like Kanye West and Donald Trump. Whatever you want to say about Liz Cheney, and I certainly have plenty of bad things to say about Liz Cheney, uh, she didn't why is hailing victory bad? Well, hailing victory is simply the English translation of Sieg Heil. And so hailing victory in and of itself is not bad. But if you're invoking a famous Nazi salute in an Anglo country, that's a recipe for failure. And people who follow you, and Richard's had many people who followed him, were, were influenced by Richard and engaged in this kind of language and behavior that had a very negative effect on their life. It blew up a lot of lives. So... That's why it's bad, because in certain circumstances, like an Anglo country, saying Sieg Heil, or the English equivalent, Hail Victory, is a recipe for social destruction and, and personal destruction. And that's bad. It's bad to destroy people. Lose because of any of those bad things. No, she did not lose because her constituents were suddenly anti-war, or genuinely or seriously anti-war. Uh, she didn't lose because of her anti-abortion stance, which she actually does have. Uh, she lost because with the soft steel. The woman she lost to uh, was actually anti-Trump in 2015.
and endorsed Cheney multiple times and does not have a really coherent difference from Liz Cheney. It was simply about that shibboleth. And a... So shibboleth, that, that refers to a story in the Bible where certain people could not pronounce a certain word. And as soon as you, you recognize that someone could not produce, pronounce shibboleth, you realize that they weren't a member of your in-group and you could therefore arm yourself against them. Jim Bowden says, Luke, where the hell have you been the past two weeks? I went through Luke withdrawal syndrome. Please do not do this to me again. Well, I've taken time off, a lot of time off the last three weeks. First of all, there were the two days of Rosh Hashanah. Then there was Yom Kippur. Then there were the first two days of the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. And then the last two days of Sukkot, Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah finally ended last night. So now there'll be no more major interfering Jewish holidays for six months until Passover. Right-wing politics that are shibboleth-based like that are just going to descend into madness um, and also descend into stupidity. There's just no way. I mean, again, whatever you want to say about Liz Cheney, she's a pretty coherent woman who's intelligent. You okay, coherent is a beautiful thing, but it's not like it's the overarching value that, that uh, just simply subsumes and, and defeats every, every other value. A lot of incoherent, inchoate uh, perspectives, feelings, uh, desires, drives are more adaptive, more effective than the most rational sounding. So, for a philosopher, incoherence is is you know the mark uh, the mark of the beast. I mean that shows that you're a rank amateur. But uh, coherence is beautiful in some circumstances, uh, maladaptive in others. Could talk to her, whereas. I don't think you could have a coherent conversation with these MAGA people. You know, I could have a conversation with Liz Cheney. I doubt that will ever happen. I don't think I could have a conversation with Mike Lindell. That might happen. <laughs> He's so wacky. I think if I... Uh, why, why would Richard expect to have a conversation with, with Mike L Lindell? Right? Mike Lindell is not in Richard Spencer's category. I mean, Richard's category of people who love to talk about philosophy and ideas, Mike Lindell and, and Kanye West, are definitely, you know, not that type of people. So did I enjoy Dancing with the Torah? I love Dancing with the Torah. So Simchat Torah is perhaps my favorite Jewish holiday where we all get to hold the Torah scrolls, which weigh about 30, 40 pounds, and you carry them over your right shoulder, and you you dance around the bima. And then you trade off, you, you eventually you, you give up your, your Torah to someone else. And it's just a big dance party. There's singing, there's dancing, there's carrying the Torah. It often spills out onto the street. Uh, a lot of good food, good dance. There are still sukkahs, the, the, the booth of, of leaves and, and branches. So Sukkot happens, it begins about four days after Yom Kippur. I, I think it's my, my favorite Jewish holiday. It's just nothing but joy, right? You eat your meals in the sukkah, you drink in the sukkah. Sometimes many people sleep in the sukkah. It's a reminder of the fragility of life, but it just gets you out of your habitual patterns. So it's a, it's an opportunity to just be with your friends, to, to have meals with your friends. And Judaism is such a physical religion. It's not primarily about coherent philosophy. You step into the mitzvah of building a soccer, right? You you physically build a, a booth of branches and leaves. You, you physically construct a, a temporary dwelling to 
live in to eat in to perhaps even uh sleep in drink in dance in you, you then physically you step into it and you celebrate you know building it being inside it there's the dancing with the Torah on Simchat Torah, where you rejoice as the come to the end of the yearly Torah cycle. So you you read the last last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, and then you start reading from the beginning of Genesis. So you come to the end of the the reading cycle, and again, such a physical religion. You're holding on to the Torah scroll, going round and round the bima. So the bima is like the the lectern, and it's just it's dancing it's it's swaying it it's you know holding on to the torah it's kissing the torah it's touching the torah it's like feeling feeling the torah right there beside you and you're in in an ecstatic dance and there's many mysteries in life that are only available to those in the dance unless you're in the dance you're not likely to know the joy of being in the dance just like there are all sorts of uh, mysteries out there that I've never participated in that I, I won't understand. But you're, you're surrounded by 50, 100, you know, 150 men who are in a similar state of ecstasy. And so you create this shared reality together, right? You, you get on the same page with each other and you, you build up this, this state of ecstasy and love and joy and passion. And you're doing it collectively. And so the emotions are that much more amped up because you're you're on the same page with other people and you're building an experience with other people and you're forming bonds with with other people and you're you may be looking over the the beamer the separated between the men and the women you may be checking out you know what who are the the women there and often they're looking really good and so you you're holding the Torah scroll like you know your friends are draped all over you you know, people are drinking and and singing at the top of their lungs, and you're just in ecstasy, going round and round, dancing round and round the bima, and you're looking over the, looking over the mechitza, the divider, you know, looking at a beautiful woman, say, oh boy, I, you know, I'd like to date her, you know, I wonder if she might be interested in me. Everyone's in a good mood, so people tend to be open, people are accessible, it, it's easy to, you know, start up, you know conversations with people if if you get tired of the prayers you go outside to the bima and there's abundant food and drink and you can just sit there for hours you know carrying on conversations with friends then you'll get up and dance for a while then you'll maybe just stand back and, and watch everyone else dancing then you'll get back in the dance then you'll you'll step away you'll go back to the booth you'll sit there with friends i mean you'll go till 10 p.m 11 p.m midnight 1 a.m 2 a.m Right, dancing, singing, drinking, eating, go home, get some sleep, come back at 10 a.m., do the whole thing all over for five hours. I mean, five hours of singing, dancing, eating, drinking, hanging out with your friends. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous holiday. Uh, uh, just the barriers come down between you and the Almighty. The barriers come down between you and your, your fellow Jews. Your barriers come down between you and acquaintances. Acquaintances turns into is friends you know friends turn into uh, bonds you 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 open up new vistas you you see new possibilities it's an ecstatic experience and it doesn't require you to believe anything all right you just join the dance 
and the dance is self-authenticating. So when I became interested in Judaism, I thought, oh, Orthodox Judaism, that's kind of backward. It's not very rational. I'm much more impressed by, say, Reform or Conservative Judaism. They make more rational sense to me. But then the experience of Orthodox Judaism was absolutely intoxicating for me. It just spoke to something you know, deep inside me, and it was inchoate, and it might have been incoherent, but I was moved. Like, you know, switches started shifting in my mind. I, I felt like I was, I was coming home. I, I felt like, my God, there's a place for me. There's a place for me. Like, I belong here. Felt good, man. Felt really good. Even if it was incoherent or inchoate. I just called him up and said, let's meet at the local Whataburger. He would probably do it. <laughs> Whereas Liz would return the email, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that, like, David Frum has said things that are much more coherent, much more based in reality about the Russia situation than all of these MAGA commentators. And I have more in common with him. Now, common ground, you know, working together. I'm not leading any coalition. And I'm, and I'm kind of trying not to lead one. Um, I think that, you know, I'm still going to comment on the passing scene. And, uh, you know, I'm still somewhat of a public figure. I mean, I'm much reduced. So where's my, my crystal light? Well, I stocked up on so many groceries for the holidays that I, I have three refrigerators and they're all absolutely stocked full. And there's no room for, for my crystal light, for my chilled crystal light. So I've got to eat my way through and drink my way through of what's in my refrigerator to try to create space. And I mean, this has been the situation for a week now, right? My refrigerator has been bursting and I've been trying to eat my way through uh, just absolutely delicious yogurts, man. The We Yogurt, O-U-I, uh, just delicious. And then then there was this, oh, this, this yogurt from Noosa, Noosa Yogurt. Have you had Noosa Yogurt? So it's from Noosa Heads, which is just north of, of Brisbane in Australia. The the creator of Noosa Yogurts from there. So I've just been, you know, chowing my way through delicious yogurts and all this delicious food, trying to find, trying to create space for, for crystal light. So, you know, where is God? God's wherever you invite him in. Like you have to create space in your life for God. You have to create space in your life for recovery. You have to create space in your life if you want to get anything done, if you want to start a business or you know, work on your voice or become a better singer or work out, right? You have to create space. And I, right now, I desperately am trying to create space in my refrigerators. All I want enough space to put in, you know, a bottle of crisp, delicious crystal light. You know, I like it chilled, right? I, I'm not into lukewarm crystal light. So I've got, I've still got some work to do before I can enjoy a cold crystal light. So I've been without it for, for about a week now. At this point. Um, but I just have a very different vision about where we want to go with this. And I do think that there is going to be a little more crisis involved in that, that is kind of hiding out, laying low, maybe, maybe kind of distracting or getting people. I mean, that's hilarious. Richard Spencer believes he's going to be off to shape the right, you know, affect the world with Crypsis, meaning in disguise. So this this new religion, REM theory that, that he's developing, like he thinks that he's just going to be able to cryptically you know, influence the world with REM theory 
and people are just going to you know ignore that it's you know, that it's uh, Richard Spencer who who is uh, doing this. I don't know. I don't think he's going to be able to pull it off. I don't think that uh, Richard Spencer is going to be terribly successful using crypto. People off on the wrong track thinking that you're a liberal or something. I'm not a liberal, although I do agree with Democrats much more than I agree with Republicans. So everything I say is genuine, but I can kind of see how there's a little bit of a deflection going on. Um, but I, I think we just need to form a coherent ideological and intellectual movement. And just by necessity, that's going to have to be something that's rather small. And that can hopefully have an impact. And I think will, and actually, I would say this strongly, invariably will have an impact, but it is going to be down the line and it's going to be subtle and it's not going to be uh, as a... So Richard believes REM theory, right? His new religion is subtle, but it's going to change the world, right? Help me skeptical. Kind of, you know, online cheerleading squad for some crazed Republican. Right. So for Richard, just making, you know, pragmatic difference in the world today, such as reducing immigration, you know, maybe rolling back some of the civil rights bureaucracy, maybe getting a conservative Supreme Court. These are boring compared to the gargantuan changes that uh, Richard wants to make. So, so normal politics does not interest Richard. He wants to transform people's souls. So that, that's my view of the matter. It's pretty complicated. On a slightly different subject, Richard, did you see that uh, uh, leaked communication from, speaking of neocons, from Ian Bremmer of, of the Eurasia yes. Group? Um, the word I've heard, and again, I have no idea how preposterous it is, but uh, this kind of looks like Musk trying to try very hard to get his proposed acquisition of Twitter blocked on national security grounds since he talks to Putin and also his- Oh, wow. Apparently- okay, well, for, okay, first off, just in case anyone else hasn't seen it. So Ian Brimmer is a, maybe not like a pure neocon, more of kind of a globalist, I guess you might even um, talk like that. He's written a number of best-selling books. He's, he's, he's one of these kind of public intellectual thinkers like Niall Ferguson or, um, uh, what is his name, Marquesas? He's actually someone I found fairly interesting now. Um, what is his name? I have his book right here. Yeah, Maseus, Bruno Maseus. Is that how you pronounce it? Maseus? Anyway. Um, he's been like that for decades, and he's part of the Eurasia group. He leaked on, I think, like his Substack or something like, that, like his email list, that um, Musk put forth all of his plans for a ceasefire after speaking with Vladimir Putin directly. And you know, Ian Bremmer, whatever you want to say about him, I, he's not the type of person who would just spread a false rumor. Um, he could, you know, he's not just some Twitter account or something. Like he could even get, I don't know, sued for defamation or something if he's just knowingly. So Richard does not approve of Elon Musk talking with Vladimir Putin, right? That's, that's wrong. That's irresponsible. That's out of control. But if, if Richard had the opportunity to talk to Vladimir Putin or Chairman Xi or any other famous world leader, do you think he'd turn down that, that fame and influence? No, it's because Elon Musk did something cool that Richard would have loved to have done. I think that's what's underlying his critique here. Maliciously spreading rumors. So I think it might very well be true. But so Putin, so Musk put forward this plan of, you know, giving Crimea to Russia officially. And, um, and I think something that Putin might not like exactly, but redoing the referenda in the um, uh, Russia, like it's not no longer Russia controlled regions under UN auspices or something, just letting people vote of where they want to be. And then he posted this, um, you know, like a polling data from, I guess, pre-2014, um, kind of looking at whether you liked um, Yanukovych um, uh, or not. As kind of- 
So anyway, let me just address the, the title of tonight's stream. Kanye West is not a political philosopher. Now, one of the insights that I've gotten from, from doing these shows is how important it is to put people in their proper genre. So just as you don't read a love letter the same way you read an electricity bill, you don't expect you know, a Richard Spencer type to be a great rapper. So too, you should not expect a, a Kanye West type to be a political philosopher. So you know, I'm not a bad person because I'm not a great singer. And you're not a bad person just because you can't throw a baseball 100 miles uh, an hour, all right? So some people who are very good at accounting, they do not make, you know, compelling podcast personalities. So, you know, once you put someone in their proper genre, I just find it brings a lot of inner peace. Like you've kind of situated them and so you can better understand them just as you can better understand a piece of writing once you put it in its proper genre. Kind of a, a way of partitioning Ukraine and then preventing Ukraine from ever entering NATO. So kind of offering a you know reasonable solution, but one that is implausible now that things are, have, have occurred. But yeah, um, I had never thought of it, whether all like you're even having an even more cynical view of Elon Musk, that everything, everything, he's, everything he's engaging is just some weird way of weaseling out of this deal, which, wow, that might be true. But I and. What's underlying this critique by Richard? You know, at at core, Richard is saying Elon Musk is a fraud, right? So Elon Musk, right? He has accomplished, you know, ten thousand times more substantial things in life than Richard Spencer. But Richard is outraged that Elon Musk is a fraud. I mean, does one not see the hilarity in this critique, Richard Spencer? A man whose actual intellectual output is tiny, right? He's never, you know, published very much. He's great at live streaming, all right? Very compelling personality. But, you know, pot calling kettle black. Uh, Richard Spencer, the live stream personality, right, is calling Elon Musk, one of the world's richest people, a fraud. Kind of, um, I, I think there's, wow, that's an interesting take on it. Yeah, but I don't think I don't, I don't think the Kanye, Twitter and the, the government would just crack down and say no. Yeah, I don't think that, that Kanye West scenario helped either. I don't think that Kanye West situation helped either. I think yeah. that added to, you know, that's like another reason to, you know, jump jump off the um, boat, you know? Yeah. Like he's really scared now, I think. I just do not know what to make of Musk Twitter acquisition. I don't see the motive outside of he got excited and high one night and just did it on a lark or something. But the fact that there aren't people preventing him, like saving him from himself also strikes me as, as strange. But I just don't see the motive because he clearly wants out of it. He doesn't want to go through a trial and discovery and losing a trial and all that kind of stuff. Because, I mean, I think Twitter basically has him dead to rights because his whole argument about bots and stuff. So the, the essence of Rich's critique is that Elon Musk is a fraud. Uh, Greg Johnson is a fraud. Uh, Donald Trump is a fraud. Kanye West is a fraud. Notice any common thread to Richard's critiques. Basically, it boils down to everyone else that you're paying attention to in life, particularly with any connection to the right, they are frauds, except for me. Stuff is negated by me, the waving of due diligence, which was insane on some level. And only makes sense if you actually believe that Twitter, you know, just it's a vanity project or, you know, I really believe in Twitter and it, it might, gosh, it might take 10 years for this deal to ever pay off. But, you know, I'm willing to suffer through it for a little while because this is a, a which I agree with, with, this is a social platform that's just going to stick around due to its nature. Um, but 
Wow. But talk about playing with fire. I mean, good Lord, that's a pure picture. I mean, at some point, this is going to really haunt Musk, all of this shit. And then the Kanye stuff as well. And then I'm having a phone conversation with Vladimir Putin. I'm not a head of state. I'm not again. I mean, what the fuck? Getting your acquisition of Twitter blocked on those grounds does sound. Yeah, Richard is outraged that uh, Elon Musk had a conversation uh, purportedly with Vladimir Putin. Like, you know, Richard is outraged that someone else might be getting attention, that Richard is not running the show. So all those other people who are running the show out there, they are outraging Richard. Like very dangerous branding. Then again, trying to get ahead of it. I could definitely see, you could definitely see that making Elon more of a martyr figure on the right. I mean, can't you just see the Tucker yeah. Carlson, can't you just see the Tucker Carlson monologue? Like, so now it's bad to even talk to someone. A major yeah. businessman is having an acquisition block just for talking to Vladimir Putin. We're on the cusp of nuclear war. I can see that. Something like that. Yes. But I think, again, like my view of Musk, and I did not think this, say, three months ago. I, I got red-pilled on Musk to the point that I think he is an absolute fraud. Uh, not that Teslas aren't a real car that might even be a pretty good car, but everything surrounding that. But think about how much more interesting it is to listen to a podcast where you are being told that that which is conventional wisdom is utterly fraudulent, right? That's compelling. That's entertaining, right? That holds your, your attention. It's great fun to listen to these kind of critiques. And it's a lot easier to do these kind of critiques if you have no sense of responsibility, very little care about whether you're right or wrong, very little care about what could be the consequences of what you're saying, right? The money, right? The fame, the audience goes to that which is interesting, not to that which is right. You know, I'd rather be right, right? I'd rather have 1% of the audience and be a lot closer to that which is right rather than have 100, 1,000 times the audience and simply be consistently interesting but wrong. Certainly the valuation of Tesla is just beyond absurd. Uh, you know, the idea that Tesla is worth more than, you know, GM, Ford, Mercedes, BMW combined is absurd. And it's like some weird, almost 90s era Silicon Valley fascination where it's like, oh, he has first mover advantage and, you know, no one will be able to stop him at some point. I mean, you could say the same thing about toys.com or whatever, although that kind of works with Amazon, granted. Uh, but, no, that, oh, sorry. You know, you go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say the, pro the problem with that, though, is like, Okay, I think that'll do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.